You're listening to Season 1 of Teaching Yoga, a podcast by me, Cora Giroux. I believe yoga teachers are on the front line of health and healing in the Western world, so I created this podcast to support the people that support the people. Each week we cover topics that matter to you, like inclusivity, accessibility, and diversity, how to make a sustainable living doing this work, and how we as teachers can be a positive voice in the changing landscape of yoga. This show is a space for real, raw conversation, a place to remind you that you're not alone, and a resource for your life and work on the spiritual path. If you want to stay connected between shows, find me on Instagram. It's just my name, C-O-R-A-G-E-R-O-U-X. I haven't yet, yeah. We had to bet. I'm only here, yeah. You know. If you don't like this music, then don't be listening to it. You know, I'm just a dude that you know, or something similar. If you don't keep it real, can you... Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Teaching Yoga Podcast. Before we get into today's show, uh, I just want to say a massive thank you for all of you who have been listening in the past couple of weeks. I know that routines have changed and commutes are no longer happening, um, but listenership has remained really, really steady and, and actually has increased a little bit over this time. So um, I just wanted to say, hey, thanks. I, I'm really glad that you're still engaging and finding the content on the Teaching Yoga podcast useful. And if you've been listening, you know that uh, every month I give away a one-on-one yoga teacher consulting session with me, 60 minutes, um, to one of you, one of the listeners of this show, um, in order to enter to win that, we just do like a random draw. All you need to do is subscribe to the show and then leave a review and just take a little screenshot of that review and send it to TL. Her email is support at coragiru.com. And then you'll go into the draw. And at the beginning of every month, we announce a new winner. Um, so in today's show, I speak with Ty Powers, and Ty is the co-founder of the Insight Yoga Institute. He's been leading Buddhist meditation and mindfulness retreats um, throughout the world for the last 20 years, and I was actually actually lucky enough to attend a retreat that Ty was leading with his wife, Sarah. Um, I can't remember the exact year. It was a couple of years ago here in Australia. Um, Ty has also completed the Spirit Rock Community Dharma Leader Training in 2003 and has led day-long retreats on issues concerning cultural diversity. He is also a certified integral coach and mentor to many people internationally. Um, And in the beginning of this interview, Ty uh, actually mentions that he has opened up a couple of mentoring slots, um, which I think are far and few between. So if you resonate with this, um, this information that he, that he puts forward in this interview, I highly recommend that you check that out. Ty has also completed level three of internal family systems therapy, therapy program created by Dr. Richard Swartz. 
And having graduated from Philip Moffitt's Change and Transition Program, Ty also leads weekend workshops offering sessions based on these themes. And that's what I really wanted to speak with Ty about today, because we are all in the throes of change um, and hopefully transition. And so I knew that by speaking with Ty, or I hoped that by speaking with Ty, that he would have some advice and some guidance for navigating the changes that we're in right now in a more skillful way. Um, So in this episode, Ty and I discuss building resilience through challenging times. And he actually shares a couple of stories about, you know, times when things weren't so rosy um, for he and Sarah and, and how that actually, um, has made him stronger and their relationship stronger and their, and their offerings to the world stronger. And I share, you know, very similar stories around that. And, and as a response to the times that we're in, Ty suggests an idea of creative engagement with life and really, um, using creativity to reinvent what we thought our lives would look like. And I think it's it's a really great mindset if we can, um, once we're out of sort of a place of survival, which, you know, for some of us is legit and real and we're just there and that's totally okay. But um, when we have the space to bring back that sort of idea of creative engagement, I thought was really fascinating. Um, and Ty also speaks about managing change and loss of control, just generally, I think something that we're all experiencing a little bit. Um, also how to uncover your values and bring those to life. And then this is something that I was just like sort of nerding out on is that in that um, change and transition program that Ty has studied with Philip Moffat, um, they've uncovered sort of predictable patterns of change, growth, empowerment, and challenge that arise in each decade of life. So uh, I think it starts at 28, Ty says, so like 28 to 34 is one little um, section. 34 to 39, which is the place where I'm at personally in my life right now. And what you can sort of expect um, to arise in your life during these periods. And of course, as Ty mentions, and we discuss, it's not, um, it's not concrete that everyone will go through these in exactly these same ways and same phases and parts of life and experiences can, can alter that trajectory. But, um, but it's just a really fascinating map. We only made it through to 54 just based on timing, but it does con- um, continue, as Ty says, into, I think, your 90s. So, um, yeah, I felt so lucky to have have this conversation with Ty. It's another one of those, like, <laughs> disclaimer, <laughs> where I really look up to Ty and, and his wife, Sarah. Um, they are much further along the path than I am, and yet they are people that I admire. So uh, it does, you know, I do get personal and Ty sort of helps me work through a few things. So um, it is a little bit like having a live therapy session uh, that I'm sharing with all of you guys. Not too much though. Like I do, I am cognizant of that and aware of it. I only try and share my stories when I think that there's a universal theme that can be overlaid to to the personal example that I share. Um, Yeah, so I hope you enjoy this interview with Ty Powers. Hey, Ty, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you, Cora. 
Um, I've actually had the pleasure to attend a retreat with you and we were just, you know, reminiscing or I was reminiscing about that a little bit before we um, started recording and, and, you know, had a great experience, had a meaningful connection with you there, but on the off chance, yeah, it was, it was a meaning, very meaningful moment to me. Um, But on the off chance, someone like hasn't been exposed to your work or what you do, would you mind just like filling us in a little bit about your path and what you're doing now? Sure. So I could say the path began way back in my teens, just some early readings that put me on to uh, things not looking um, as they seemed or as I felt them to be. But uh, in terms of the retreats and the work that I do right now, for the last 11 years or so, my wife and I have had an institute called the Insight Yoga Institute. And the institute has combined three modalities that we have felt um, really in combination um, push us forward in a gentle, loving, and yet firm way. And that's Buddhism, psychology, and body-based practices, most definitely yoga. It seemed that Um, All three of those traditions, of course, um, have all three of those things in them in some flavor, but it's a a matter of emphasis. The Buddhism emphasized um, mind training in a way that the other two didn't quite do. Um, Certainly meditation practice, uh, the Buddhism also emphasized. The yoga practice emphasized asana practice, body-based movement, even though, again, it has those other qualities in it, but it wasn't, you know, in most yoga classes, 25, 30 years ago, you would sit for two minutes after a class, two, three minutes, something like this. So again, I'm not uh, saying the tradition doesn't have that um, in it. It just wasn't emphasized in a way we thought was appropriate. And then of course, um, all the work that's, um, that's arrived on the scene, if you will, the last hundred years, hundred plus years in psychology, and especially the last 20 years, there's just been uh, um, a kind of um, what? There's been a blossoming, a renaissance in terms of the understandings, especially with neuroscience coming in there the last uh, 10, 15 years or so. So it just seemed those three things all together um, conspired to uh, bring about a practice that we felt was really important to offer people. So we offer that practice, uh, those practices on retreat. And we both work individually with, um, with students using those three modalities. We're using something called internal family systems therapy more specifically. Now that's another thing that we use also on retreat. Uh, Our retreats are conducted in a fashion that, allows each of us to see students a half hour now each day uh, one-on-one. And so during that half hour, we're actually offering them a kind of psychotherapeutic um, place to work. And so, yeah, that's that's the, uh, the the kind of origin of the work and then how it's manifest now. We're seeing people one-on-one now on Skype, and we do retreats in order to uh, have them have an experience of A, being in silence, B, having Buddhist mostly teachings, and then C, being uh, in one-on-one relationship with us. Yeah, just for personal like personal knowledge here, and to clarify, 
So on your retreats, you now have one, half an hour one-on-one meetings with student with each student. With each student, yes. Um, we managed to work our schedule. The, the last two retreats we've done that on now. It used to be fifteen minutes. I'm not sure the retreat that you were on. Um, we would have had some version of that. I think you must have seen one of us one-on-one in that retreat. Maybe not. Maybe uh, it was. Maybe I chatted with you. I'm not sure. Maybe we okay. had a longer interaction, but I. Um, yeah, that's. I don't recall. We've been doing that for many years now. Just it's just been the last year and a half that we've taken it to a half hour. Found our way to to do that, so that we thought a half hour is is a, enough of an arc to get into something important and to to hopefully work with it in a way that they can walk away without um, the tissue. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to make one more clarification just because I know people listening will have this question as well. Um, for, and we can talk about it later too, but for people who are interested in seeing you and or Sarah, do you, do you just like take new clients or do you have a full roster or how does that, how does that situation work for people who are, who are interested in that work? They can. So, so what we just did actually was we, we put up a platform online. Um, there's a scheduling app called Acuity. And so you can go there and take a look at what our schedule is and, and sign yourself up. Now we reserve a lot of those spaces for many of the students that we already have in, in the Institute and so on, but we do take new clients here and there. So it is something that's, that's possibly available. Cool. Cool. Um, good to know. <laughs> so, um, you know, one of the things about the current situation that we're in, and, and, you know, we had a chance to share a little bit about our personal circumstances before we started recording, um, is that so many of us on an unprecedented level have sort of found ourselves in the same boat. Like, you know, it doesn't matter if you've been teaching for 30 years or if you've been um, teaching yoga or meditation for a year, you've suddenly sort of lost your normal way of working in the world, which, uh, you know, doing in-person retreats, trainings, teaching classes, seeing clients in person for, you know, individual yoga sessions. Um, and I know that some of the work that you do is really around managing change. So I just wanted to get your take um, for the because this is a podcast specifically for yoga teachers. So for the people who are listening and they're, they're going through that change that was not chosen. So I know that that does uh, affect things when you choose or you, you don't choose. It, it can have an impact on how you handle change. So do you just have any, have any um, ideas for people who are really struggling with the change in terms of their career? Like I know you guys are you know, not canceling retreats and having to make big changes too. Wow. So I guess maybe the immediate answer that comes to mind is this is how we build resilience. If we meet the challenge of something that we could not foresee or, or in the main couldn't be foreseen. And we, um, we kind of lean back into creative engagement with our life. So this is, um, in terms of, of responding to a change, I think the first thing that I always recommend that people do is to um, begin to sort what's really important to them. 
uh, because a change obviously gives us that opportunity to, to take another look. So, so how did I get here? And how is here serving me or how is it not serving me now? And so in just asking some of those questions, there's a, a process of resorting that goes on. So what now? So um, I just spoke to someone in Asia yesterday who was saying that this transition for yoga teachers in particular in Asia, where she is, has been um, a boom for them. She's actually feeling quite um, sad for the yoga studios because what's happening with many of her students and many of the teachers is they're recognizing that they can now go online, offer a class, not offer a percentage to a studio and so on. So crisis opportunity, there is an opportunity to look at things differently when crisis arrives. And this is certainly providing that for everyone I've spoken with. So what is meaningful in my life? Um, how am I going to go forward not knowing when the next pandemic will hit, how it will hit, uh, how will I earn a living given how things uh, um, may change in that way the next time, and so on. So it's just, you know, what I like to say, what Buddhism likes to say is this is how it is, and <laughs> you simply imagined that you had more control than you did. And of course, because we have a certain amount of control, there's this sense that if we just did this or that better, we would have more control. And so this is just a call to come back to the, the recognition that life is uncertain. Uh, things happen that are, are out of our control. And even though it seems because of the modern world providing so much more control, individual control, that we do have more control than we do, relax that idea and and remember remember how creative we are as a species and this is really our birthright um there was an article that was in the new york times a few weeks back it was an interview with jack cornfield who's a a renowned writer and buddhist teacher in california and the interviewer was was asking him how to deal with uh, uncertainty and one of the things he said straight away was, well, just let me ask you for a second. Just take a moment and look around. Look at me. Look around your office. Look out the window. And what do you see? And Jack stepped in to say, well, what you see is something that existed in someone's mind before it became manifest. And so this, again, he was pointing it, us to the fact that this is our legacy to create our way into the next thing. And for some reason, as we get older, we get a little more uh, afraid of our, or, or we narrow our creative capacity. And so this is an opportunity to, to reimagine how you like, you would like your life to go. So that's my response to that. Mm, I love that. Um, I recently, like I was in a strange position where before the pandemic hit, I was a co-owner in two yoga studios um, and ran teacher trainings and taught a bajillion in-person classes and all the things that yoga teachers do after teaching for a decade or whatever. Um, but I gave all of that up in October and had to go through the process of the creative reimagining of what my career would look like, um, you know, six months before that, that change was, um, 
what forced timing. upon. Uh, yeah. And so, but I, I had the element of choice and that was the, that was the thing. It was incredible timing, but to see that, um, to see everyone else go through that process sort of en masse six months after I went through it, it's just like given me a review. It's like, oh, this is what I went through. And then these are the themes and, um, of that, of that process playing out. Um, but yeah, the, the idea of, of being creative with what you want to do next. And like now I run an online business, but that was, you know, pre pre pandemic sort of. So it's a, it's such an interesting thing. <laughs> it is. So, so that you, you were one of the fortunate ones. So I do understand I was. the, the, the anger and frustration with being forced into something. I mean, it's, I mean, that, that is a natural response to something like this. You know, I've worked so hard. I've tried so hard. I've built this. And uh, I was just thinking for Sarah and I, 20, 30 years ago, if this had happened, we were a month away from not being able to pay the rent. That's just where we were then. And so, so many people are in that scenario. And to, to even speak about trying to creatively engage your way out of that could cause someone to feel irritated with the, with the idea. Um, so I get that. Um, but this, again, going back to this is how resiliency is built. Sarah and I have been in um, several situations. We've been bankrupt. We've been in situations where we didn't know what was coming next. And it really, uh, it required a lot of us. There were a lot of tears, a lot of grief, a lot of sadness, a lot of feeling like, you know, how did we get here? We failed uh, our ideas, our dreams, and so on and so forth. But you know, our life has turned into something magical and we just feel like we can land on our feet pretty much whatever you throw at us. Uh, I don't want to say that too loudly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. um, this is how it goes. So I would encourage people to, to you know, once they get beyond the, the anger and frustration of, you know, why me, why this, um, to really embrace the 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 challenge and the possibility for this actually taking their life in a direction that will be more fulfilling than the one they were planning and could see yeah and um just just to not alienate anyone listening even though i chose my change in october and it, it i it was a long process to get there uh, it didn't end in the way i wanted it to. So it, there was a lot of, uh, anger <laughs> and, and grief and, and being paralyzed in that for a while. So, um, so it, even though it was a choice, it didn't, um, there were parts of it that I would not have chosen. Um, so I do, I do understand that as well. And it, and it took months for me, um, to get back on my feet. And that's one of the things I heard you speak about in a recent interview you did. Um, I should probably out myself a little bit. I have a picture of Sarah on my altar. <laughs> so she's one of the people that I greatly admire in terms of a teacher, but also a human being. And um, hearing that you and Sarah, you know, at some point in your life, were a month away from not paying your rent, or you were bankrupt, or you didn't know it was coming. Um, that to me, like, gave me such a huge sigh of relief to know that this person that I admire so much has 
experienced, you know, tough times as well and has, has come back from it, you know, and as you say, like is now has built resilience. And I, and I do feel that process with the last couple of months of what I was going through. It's like when the pandemic happened, I was like, well, I've already lost all my money and all my students and all my everything. (laughs) It's like, I feel quite resilient in, in like, as you say, like, well, what else could you throw at me? Throw up a pandemic. Okay. Well, that's terrible. And I would never want that to happen, but I didn't feel, um, I felt, I felt stronger because of what had happened previously. Um, so for, for anyone listening who, you know, maybe they have a picture of you on their, on their altar or Sarah, or, you know, they look up to your teachings, would you elaborate any more about that time in your life? Um, when things weren't as magical? Sure. Um, well, maybe there's a couple of things to say. First, I want to just address what you just said. Um, when when you feel something is thrust upon you and you don't have the resources to, to wait and uh, sort, the word I used before, to, to feel into, all right, what is next? Um, what do I really want to do? What can I really do? What do I have the resources to allow myself to do? When you're in a scenario unlike yours, uh, where you are a month away, uh, it feels exceedingly bleak. You don't feel like you have the luxury or the option of, of figuring out what comes next. You just feel a kind of emergency urgency. And so I'm, you know, I'm really um, empathetic of that feeling. I know that feeling really well. It's a kind of panic. Um, um, when change hits, um, part of the, the work that I do, change and transition, part of the recognition of what that work is about is that change happens, transition does not. Transition requires work and it takes time. And so, again, the empathy comes when, you know, there's a change like this and there's no time. There's because uh, transition requires seasons, if you will. The, the time it takes to change is seasons. It's the same internally for us. So in the absence of the time it takes uh, emotionally to transit a change, um, we, we, we will have to lean on people that have been through something similar. We'll have to lean on teachings. I think we'll have to lean heavily in that direction during our darkest hour Uh, because we can't even expect, I would say necessarily, that we have the wherewithal in those moments to know quite what to do. It's, it's, it's the future calling us to, to that future. And so the, the path to it is, is, uh, to be made, it's not known. And so that unknownness, um, that uncertainty inspires a lot of fear. And that's, I know what a lot of people are going through. And that I remember that fear that we had back then. But I will say, we also had faith in each other. We had a lot of love between us, a lot of faith in our, our individual characters. So for those who aren't in a relationship that was that committed back then, I understand that's another level of if I had that, or if I only had that, that would make a difference. And yes, of course it would, but don't let that um, 
deter you. Don't let that make you feel unduly um, bereft if you don't have that. There are, um, I think there's other forces at work in terms of what a human life is. Um, not just the forces of our own will and our own determination. Uh, there are other things that are going on. There are mysteries uh, around what this all is and who we are. And so uh, to use the word lean again, lean into the mystery of, of what that might be rather than thinking, you know, it's all up to my individual resources. Yeah, well, that's, that's where it's going to manifest, but I don't think it's all up to our individual resources. So that's part of the surrender to um, another source, another power, whatever that is for you, just to surrender to the mystery. Of, of what this all means. Yeah. And that's, that's super helpful to think about, um, you know, navigating the loss of control and knowing that sometimes you do have to lean on other people. Like that was a, a huge challenge for me um, to accept help, you know, and to be in the place instead of giving help um, the tables when they're turned um, that was a hard pill for my ego to swallow, you know, wow. and, um, of course, especially, yeah, especially yeah. as a teacher, you were a teacher, like you said, you did trainings. And so I met the pitfall, right? A potential pitfall for those of us who are in positions that people look to. And it's one, um, I really want to continue to caution people against selfing <laughs> with a, with a, in that way, this is who I am, and this is how I need to present myself in all ways and at all times. That's a that's a deep and bloody trap. <laughs> and, <laughs> totally. And, yeah, and so just really having had the opportunity, like you just did, to to be slapped around a little bit in that. So because you were, as you say, successful, and yet you you shifted everything, and and now you're not quite sure what. I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but I think that's what you said. Yes. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. It was like, you know, from the outside, I will just use like little air quotes. I probably was quite a successful yoga teacher in terms of what that meant in your, in your career. Um, and was, yeah, often in a position to give people opportunities and to, um, yeah. And to, and to be a leader in that realm. And then, um, and there's a lot of identity stuff that gets wrapped up in that. And I think that's what you mean by selfing. Um, I was lucky enough to have experienced a loss of that early in my teaching career. Um, when I moved to Australia, I didn't teach yoga for the first while that I was here. And instead, I worked at a pub and I served beer and $7.90 steaks. How, how great. <laughs> Yeah. And I lost my identity as a yoga teacher because people knew me as the chick in the pub behind the bar rather than this identity that I had built up. Um, and I was making less money and I didn't have my friends and, you know, um, so that I really lost my identity as a, as a teacher in that moment, which preceded this one, which it wasn't as bad. I was like, ah, whatever, <laughs> but it was still hard to, um, to accept help and generosity from other people, which I, I'm so privileged to to have been okay. able to lean on those people. So there it is. So so a change in your life um, created the opportunity for a transition. So you were able, as a result of that change, going somewhere where no one else knew you, 
um, to, to reimagine yourself, to not be stuck to the idea that I, I am a successful yoga teacher and this is how that looks. And given the fact that it looks like this, these are the only things I can do with my life. Okay, well, question, question that uh, equation as you did. Yes, I'm glad. Um, I hope people are benefiting from this mentoring session that I'm having with you. <laughs> I think people will see their, see their own stories, I hope. in. Um, yes, we certainly hope that. In this. Yeah, and um, one thing that you mentioned right at the beginning of the conversation was around like getting clear and this these are not your words but getting clear on what really matters i said something about you know um coming back to to your priorities or your values and when i was sort of like researching um the institute for change and transition um and like reading what is this what is this organization really about i noticed that values kept coming up in all of the the blog posts that i was reading over and over again and it's something that has is, is been on my mind a lot in the last, I don't know, a couple of years, like really trying to be clear on my values and then also act out. It's not quite the right word, but act through or something my values to make sure that my behavior is in alignment with what I say I value. But for people who maybe don't even know what their values are, you know, how, how do people go about uncovering them other than circling them off of a page? Uh, there's a bunch of different ways I would say, but just to respond to that, because um, my, my thoughts are evolving on what that is um, as we speak. So I think we're all, we could say reasonably that we're all living our values. Interesting. And, yeah. So, um, so I think it's simply a matter of looking around, uh, taking a closer, sharper, more critical without being critical look at how we're living our lives and because I, I i can't imagine that that there's any other way to do it that whatever it is we're doing we could say yes um, rightfully certain things were thrust upon us and that would be accurate for a lot of people around the world um and and there's a value that we're um We've taken that, those set of values and we've placed our own within that or on top of that. So there's, there's always some element of choice uh, involved in being human. And so this idea of, of knowing what our values are is to first just take a look at how you're living and, and just really reassess how much time are you spending with friends and family? How much time are you spending reading, alone, meditating, um, taking care of your body? How much time are you out in nature? How much time do you devote to work? How, how, how well do you like your work? You know, that you can just carry on with the questions around how your life is being lived and derive a sense of what you value from that. Now, values are obviously, as I just said, um, thrust upon us they start very early. We derive our basic values from our families and cultures of origin. So, um, and that evolves through life. Different age groups have different values, um, different um, races, different genders, uh, and so on. We can just, you know, tick off all of those. And so 
many of the values that we have adopted are values that came from those various things I just named. And they may or may not be useful to us, or they may or may not be expansive enough for us, the values of a culture or a gender or so on. And so to to take the next step into, as you said, um, being our values or living our values is to see what they are. And then what I do is I have people, when I work with them, first thing I do is I have them sit down and make out a values chart. Just put it on paper and just tell me everything you care about. Put that down. And then once you've done that, um, then I ask them to um, place that in a hierarchy of values as, as much as possible. Kind of narrow it down and then place it in a hierarchy. And don't do more than 10 or 15 at most. And so, and then just, and then we start to work on that together. So you say you value um, uh, time with family. But I see here, um, practically speaking, that you're spending 15 hours a day uh, working. So let's let's work on how we can make these two values that you say you have mesh. So it's something like this. So you, you take a you know a clear a clear look at, at at what you say you value, and then um, you see very often that well I don't quite value that the way I thought I did, or you see that there are are values once you place them down values that clash. And uh, a classic example I give of this is. Most of us have the value of of having integrity, of being honest and truthful. And most of us also have the value of being kind. And so being honest and truthful may may involve something that doesn't um, feel kind, saying something. So there's two values right there that are in conflict. And so it's really great also to get to know by putting them on paper which values you might have that are in conflict. And if they are at any given moment in conflict, you can, knowing that there's a clash in these two values, it's not, it's not sitting there um, unconsciously um, confusing you in the moment as to what to do. You can make a choice. I know these values clash. So right now, what's the most skillful action to take? And then perhaps last on this, on this issue, is just putting one foot in front of the other each day, attempting to behave, in other words, to live according to the values you say you have. And so that's just a matter of, of intention, setting a goal to living those values. And then intentionality is the, is the actual day-to-day, moment-to-moment. Um, how am I skillfully taking myself in the direction of those values, or how am I taking myself away from them? That's so helpful. Um especially when you said like you are living your values, that's such a light bulb moment to think about it that way, that whatever you are giving your time to and spending your time on, whether it's a conscious value or not, um, it is showing you, you know, what you're valuing in your day-to-day life. That's so, that's so good. And then also making it conscious and then, you know, reworking parts if they don't quite match up with, with what you truly value, um, if it, you know, something like, I think the work thing is such an intense one that we, that we just inherit from Western culture is that none of us, I don't think value working, not none of us, but many of us don't value working 15 hours a day, yet we find ourselves doing that, um, quite often. So in that hierarchy of values, we may find, well, money is money and things, and the security that money buys is more important to me. And that's, 
even though I say I'm really into my family, um, I really want my higher value is that my family feels utterly and completely safe financially. So, so I'm going to work 15 hours. So, you know, there's always all sorts of ways to play it out, right? Well, yeah. And then you might feel better about that choice. You exactly. Know? Because exactly. then you don't have cognitive dissonance or whatever about, I say I value this, but I'm always doing this. It's like, you know what, what I really value is, is their security. So it's, you can feel better about it. Um, that's, that's so great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, another thing that I've, I've like watched a little mini YouTube clip with you describing a workshop that you offered a couple of years ago and you probably are still offering them, you know, when you can get back, get back to that. But yeah, I just um, did one before the shutdown here in London. Oh, right. Okay. Um, was it the same workshop? Were you doing like the same? Cause I know you were talking about taking the age brackets away. And I did. did I yeah. It's called yeah. change and transition. Yeah. And it's for, you know, generally speaking, it's for different age brackets. That's how it was initially taught by Moffat, he would break it out into certain decades of life because those decades had similarities in terms of, you know, what we're onto for ourselves uh, and in the world. And so um, one of my colleagues in the first training that Philip Moffat gave to give us that work to, to do ourselves, um, one of my colleagues just threw it up in the air and said, I'm just going to invite whoever comes. He's a, um, <laughs> he's a Dharma teacher and a film producer. And he just... Uh, Invited everyone, and then I talked to him afterward. He said it was fabulous, and you know, some of the older people had some of the things to say to the younger people, and vice versa. And it just, there was a really wonderful synergy. And and in fact, the last two I've done now, I started out my first one I think was forties and fifties, first and second one, and then uh, this last these last two have been, you know, whoever shows up, and it's been fine. It's been wonderful. There is cert there's certainly something to learn from hearing someone a decade ahead or two ahead of you. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, why do you think I have this podcast? <laughs> because I just get to talk to people who are interested in the same things, but are who are usually uh, ahead of me on the journey. Um, because there's, and it's being in a room with different generations is something that, um, that I really value as well. And it doesn't always get to be my actual family, but different generations of, you know, practitioners. Um, because, and in the, the business that I run now, we have different generations of people and you just, they add a perspective that, you know, that um, you might not be able to access when you're like, I'm 34, almost, almost 35. And hearing from someone in their sixties about what their practice is like is such a great window into the future. Um, okay. So, so let's just take that for example. Um, so in, in Philip Moffat's um, perspective on adult developmental stages, um, the, the um, early adult stage between 33 and 39, and his work is based on a, a lot of um, work that's come out of um, um, Yale and Harvard on uh, social psychology and, and, and where we should be at given points in our life. Um, so between 33 and 39, for example, you're establishing your uh, identity as an adult for yourself and with others. Interesting. Okay. And then, and then how he breaks it down is he breaks it into there's an empowerment um, in that, and then there's a challenge in that. And so the empowerment in this stage of your life is to, to sort of compromise um, with all the dreams that you had in your 20s, the compromise being the sort of sorting. You can't have it all 
as you thought you might have in your in your 20s or earlier. And so now you're recognizing that you can't have it all. So your your empowerment is to set appropriate priorities. And so the 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 challenge in that is if you haven't been there, um, this is a kind of critical catch-up time, this, these years of your life. If you've perhaps, as so many, let's say, in, in California or in New Age, um, have lived in the magical, perhaps a little too long, and so they're not at your age setting the priorities they might need to set in order for their future to look the way they would like it to look magically. So that this, your stage is to move actually from thinking of the world as magical to thinking of it as mysterious. Interesting. That's so fascinating. Um, and this is what I was hoping that there would be. So I, I heard you speak on um, the Yoga Land podcast about these different generational or like d- different decades and, and the lessons or the challenges that people were would go through. And I was curious because I hadn't heard of this model before, if there were like um, predictable situations that people in different ages would find themselves in, in terms of development. Like when I was in school, I, ch- I did study child developmental psychology. So like what happens as we're developing, but we didn't, I didn't have an adult developmental psychology course. It was a long time ago, but um, I was really hoping that that you would say, yes, there are predictable things. So we know what happens between 33 and 39. Before we go further down that spectrum, can we talk about the tw- like the 20s? Like, so you kind of touched on it. There's um, like more of a magical, everything is possible situation. Which is kind of where you should be. So in, in uh, Philip's chart, he starts at 28. So we don't, we don't actually... Okay. Um, spend much time talking about the 20s, but just in terms of my own personal experience, um, the world was, the possibilities were infinite. I I thought I was, you know, my own uh, king um, in my 20s. (laughs) And that that there would be um, so many things, um, opportunities at my disposal. And and that spilled over into a very new age, magical thinking type of uh, experience of life. And it, what was wonderful about maybe my first fall was that it really um, disabused me of that notion. It was right around, I was flying high in my uh, um, early, mid-20s, the different jobs I had, ending up in a corporate job in television um, at a very young age, managing a lot of people at a very young wow. age, a lot of responsibility. And really feeling into that and, and feeling this is not what I want to be doing. This is not right. And so I'm just going to jump out of it um, without really thinking it through. And the next few years uh, were, were years that, that brought on a, a bunch of hardship around that overconfidence, that <laughs> youthful exuberance, that um, magical thinking. So you know, there's a lot more details to that than that, but mm-hmm. to give uh, readers a sense of, of that's how the twenties can look to most of us. You know, some of us are much more feet on the ground in their twenties. I'm going to do this and this and this, and that's going to lead to that. And there's something to be said for that too, because one of the ways I love to work with people now is to ask them to imagine how they would like their life to feel, feel two, three, five, on. And so 
one of the ways that we operate in our 20s is to imagine how we want our life to look. And so we have, we have a program for that. We go to college, we're going to study a certain thing. I'll come out, I'll be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever. Um, I'll set up a practice, I'll buy a home, I'll get married, I'll have kids. And, and then when we get that or some of that, we realize that it doesn't exa- feel exactly like I thought it would. And so, you know, in some cases, of course, it's great and it's all just right. But in many cases, there's a disappointment there. And so I think in that sense, that might be the wrong way around to, to approach your life in terms of how you want to look. And, and I've found uh, through working with people in, in my own life, Sarah's life as well, that we've gotten more juice out of uh, trying to imagine how it should feel and then working the, working the, the program, if you will, to or the values so that it yeah. feels that way. And it leaves um, more possibility because if you if you put the parameters around it on how you want it to look, it seems like there's a certain way that you have to arrive at that destination where, you know, if you're putting a guideline on how you want it to feel, you're sort of leaving the mechanisms of how that transpires a bit more open. So Um, you hit it it. Um, because, well, there's another aspect of this too. That's really great. At least for us, our life has turned out um, far more beautiful than we had than we had planned it to be. And I think that's, <laughs> that's the result of going the back way around, which is how do we want it to feel? And there were times where it felt like, you know, we're, 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 we're not being as responsible as we should be in attempting to, to direct our life in that way. And, you know, you hear the stories, you see them in movies all the time of the parents saying, you know, no, you can't pursue that dream. It's not realistic. You've got kids and you can't. And all that, and and that's all to a certain extent true. So I understand also the uh, the barriers there seems to be to to do it that way. How, how can you attempt to live a life uh, that you dream, that you want to feel in a certain way about? How is that responsible? Mm. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's where the that's I guess that's where faith comes in a little bit, yeah, which you touched yeah. on touched on earlier. Well, faith uh, and and risk and failure. You have to be willing to risk. You have to be willing to to you know get dusted up. Um, and that's just how it is. Um, failure is part of the process of getting it right. Somehow we've lost some of that uh, in the Western world. Uh, and not just the Western world; it's in Asia, big time. You you can't fail. You can't you can't get it wrong. You gotta you gotta just keep getting it right. And that's the pressure. That first of all, it's not human. Um, and and second of all, it's just not how we are at our creative best. So there's a, there's a huge limitation to to trying to stay on completely on point and not fail. So we won't take the risks that we need to take. We won't take the risks um, interpersonally that we need to take to grow and change if we're unwilling to fail. We, we won't take the risk to embarrass ourselves. We won't take the risk to uh, expose ourselves, to be vulnerable, all of which um, conspires to make us less human than we, can, than we could otherwise be. I've been searching for stories of people failing. <laughs> It's something that I do in my um, 
my downtime <laughs> is like when you think of someone who you think is really successful or this author that you like or you know this person who seems like they have this tremendous life and you're and I love to like google them and see all their early failures <laughs> because it um it reminds me that that is part of the process it's not like anyone you know really um escapes that mm. Uh, let me just say one thing to that, and maybe you can find it at some point. There was an NPR, the National Public Radio in the U.S. I think it was a Terry Gross show uh, a few years back. She had some woman on. I didn't get her name. I've, I've told this story before. She was a. Um, she had her on because she was a, a young entrepreneur. She had developed different companies, very very successful, and she was being asked, you know, what do you attribute your success to? And she said, well, when I, as a child, when I came home every day, my dad would sit down at dinner and ask me, what did you fail at today? And she said, it was just, you know, my, my eyes got big and excited every day to come home and tell, tell dad what I didn't get right um, and what I did in, in response and in contrast to what I did. And so she said when she first got into the work world and realized how um, unwilling so many of her uh, employees were to take risks and to fail. It really kind of shocked her to the extent to which this is a failing that we think of failure this way. So anyway, if you can find that, you would love yeah. that. that I'm, <laughs> I'm going to search for it. Um, so we know 34 to 39, that's my stage at the moment. What comes, what comes after that? So uh, I'm approximately forty to forty-four, and this is um, this is called a, um, a a sorting out stage. So at this point, you're submitting to no longer being a, a young adult, um, and and you're actually recognizing the advantage of being a grown-up. You feel this uh, empowerment. You've you've hopefully established yourself enough in your thirties that you that you have something that is of value that you're offering. And so, and you've, you've seen it work. You know, you have um, the skills that it takes to make, to make your life work to this point. And so you're kind of basking in that a little bit. And so the, the next um, uh, empowerment for you is sorting out, you know, what are your, given that you've been successful to a point to this point, uh, and you know what the limitations are, what are your values and priorities going forward? Because, um, the reason that's important as an empowerment at this stage is the challenge is um, there's a potential loss of future opportunities beginning at 40. And not just because necessarily, because, you know, um, things are changing, we're, we're um, getting older later and so on, we're healthier later in our lives. But there's something in the human psyche, which I hope is going to change. But for now, um, people may not trust you as much to make a huge change. Uh, much further than your uh, mid to late forties, you know, to, to, they may not hire you in the same way they would, they may, and so on. So that's the, that's the idea of the potential loss of future opportunities, or it just, you know, you just may not want to take the time to go back to, to law school or, or med school uh, much later than those ages. Yeah. It's, um, it's this is so fascinating. I have a friend who is 44 and um, she's one of my good friends. 
and is grappling with that exact thing about work and opportunities. And she, she had a very successful career and she is trying to change it. So she's left that successful career and going more into um, holistic body work and yoga, but then grappling with, well, what if no one will hire me if I want to go back to, to that, to that career? And um, me at 34, I was, quite honestly, like struggling with that line of reasoning with her, um, being like, but you're so talented and you've got so much experience and like, how would they not hire you? And she's like, well, there's someone who's younger who will do it cheaper. And, you know, I've been out of the game and, and I was just like, wow, I, where I'm at, I, I hadn't considered that, but it's so interesting to, to hear that this is sort of like a, a, a thing that we go through during thing. those years. It is. Yeah. And so it's something to watch out for. Yeah. So what, what's great about um, having these kind of um, structures, and of course, you know, structures are flat, right? Human beings are round. Yep. <laughs> and, and so there's, there's all sorts of, you know, um, outliers to any of, any of these, um, these things that I'm putting forth here, that Philip's putting forth, that have been put forth as social science. Um, so we need to remember yeah. that. Totally. Yeah. But uh, just to know that the landscape is to to help you normalize how you might feel at any given point um, in the landscape. And so the normalization of anything um, helps us just go, okay, all, all right, I'm, I'm not I'm not special here. Uh, everyone's feeling some version of this. Okay, carry on. Yeah. That's so helpful. So um, what's the next stage? It starts at 45? Uh, yeah. So in, at 45, uh, the developmental task is to, is to own your life deeply and a kind of individuation. Another, if you will, individuation. This would be the second individuation from, you know, the one you did as a teen moving away from primary caregivers. This would be individuating away from, let's say you're in a long-term relationship at this point. And so you're, you're really individuating even inside the relationship. I, I remember when Sarah and I were, were doing that, we were so bonded and so together and still are. And yet there was another level of individuation that needed to happen right around this time. So that, and that's that sense of owning your unique sense of life and who you are, even though you have, you know, similar values, owning that. And then, um, Again, on this one, the empowerment is to uh, know what's realistic for you. And that, and I say that realistic, you know, with air quotes, um, because what's realistic to you may be too narrow, may be a function of some of the values you adopted from family, gender, culture, so on. And so um, I really want that word to, to be very, very flexible. But um, just in terms of, you know, here's how much money I have in the bank. Um, here's how much energy I have. Here's how much health um, I find myself having. That sort of knowing what's realistic in terms of what to challenge yourself with next. You know, I have two kids. I have five kids. I have no kids. Mm -hmm. all, all those things is, is how I'm using that word. But I, again, I want, I want to really emphasize that word is very, very flexible. And so the challenge there is the, the catching up of the sorting out if you haven't. 
Yeah. And it, um, it, it's, I know realistic, we, I, I feel comfortable with the term realistic, but I understand what you mean in, in terms of it being quite, it could be limiting, but, um, I'm even thinking about part of this now. It's like just being truthful with yourself about like, for me being truthful and how long it takes me to answer my emails every day. So I make sure I actually schedule it in rather than, you know, trying to oh, get yeah. them all done in a shorter amount of time that it actually takes. Um, yeah, but and I, and I find I find that quite empowering. It's like okay, just schedule the damn ninety minutes and stop like falling short of an expectation. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's nice. So that stage that stage starts at forty five. How long does that go? Until uh, almost fifty. Right. Okay. Okay. And then what what happens next? um, so 50 to 54 approximately you're settling into yourself um you're really settling into your uh, self-confidence and power and so power in this case is not um doesn't mean um power over anything it's power is agency so you you actually know what it takes you know how to ask for help you know that everything essentially is a collaboration and so you're wielding your um, agency or influence or power in that way uh, for good, hopefully. So you're also asking yourself um, what really matters. So this is more of the sorting. And so the empowerment is uh, in that stage is to, to deeply inhabit yourself. You, you really feel, and I remember feeling that uh, at that age, uh, a deep sense of, okay, you know, I, I, I know my faults. I know what I'm good at. I'm actually okay with my faults. This is not cavalier. I, um, I do uh, attempt, continue to attempt to transform them, but they're not a hindrance in the way they were in earlier years. So that's the kind of inhabitation. There's a, there's a level of self-acceptance uh, that goes, generally speaking, with that, those middle adult years, 50 to, to almost 55. Um, and then uh, the challenge is feeling a loss uh, or a failure that's hard to move beyond. So, you know, as we're uh, feeling our power and our you know, sense of who we are and settling into that, um, that actually affords us uh, a nice way of looking back because we're, we're feeling more confident in ourselves. But but we can look back and and the challenge is not to look back and to to think of those things as failures. Um, so that can be something that's really hard to move beyond. Uh, there's a couple of things that happened for me. I remember when, and looking back, it felt every time I looked back at those, I winced until I really just sat with it and went, wait, wait, wait. I remember there was one thing that happened to Sarah and I, I won't go into that here, that was uh, – quite significant. And I remember sitting with um, someone I was working for at the time. um, And I told her the the full story of what had happened and how regretful I was of what had happened. And she just kind of looked at me so sadly. And she said, um, that would, it would really be awful, Ty, if that's all you got out of that. And it wasn't, there wasn't a criticism it was literally she had heard the story completely differently and it 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 shocked me awake it was uh, lovely for her to say it that way so then i started to 
um, look at the story a little differently and therefore tell it differently. And, and of course, this is something important too for all of us is, you know, when you find yourself telling your life story to someone, um, really, really carefully recognize whether or not what you're saying is still true. I love when people ask me stories about, you know, our, our background. There's, there's various stories you've told a, you know, a number of times. You tell them the same way, the same inflection, the same bits of humor. And, and so, no, no, try not to do that. Try to really. <laughs> <laughs> so is that, is that still true or is that still um, the full truth? Anyway, the chart goes on. It goes all the way up to ninety, you know, over a hundred. So, wow, and this okay. is something I actually teach um, on these um, these trainings. Wow, it's so it's such a fascinating. Um, I don't want to call it a map, but that's the word I'm going to use because I don't have a better one. So that, as you say, like it's um, there's variation, and it's not like everyone will go through this exactly to clockwork and different life experiences, I'm sure maybe would move some of these stages forward or back or um, shift the trajectory of it a little bit. But having that as a basic framework feels, um, it feels quite empowering to, to know that, um, that people are experiencing similar things and it's not just, you know, me or another person going through an individual crisis or challenge, it's actually part of the, the process and part of the journey that, that we can expect to go through things like this? You know, failing used to be uh, uh, ennobling and, and mm -hmm. somehow it got shifted. Actually, Philip Moffat writes a great article um, on his website. I'm not quite sure where it is about his notions of how that came to be, how that there was some shape-shifting uh, of failure. I have read it. I think I've read that one. I'll, I'll try and find it and link to it for people. Yeah, because it's a great article about that and to, to remind people that it's not what failure is. It's not the way we're, we're operating under it right now. It's really, it's, it's a disservice to think of failure the way we're thinking of it in the modern world too often. Mm. Ty, I could speak to you for another two hours, but I want to I be respectful of your time. I do have a client coming up soon, so yes, yeah. So I'll make sure we um, we wrap this up very quickly. Um, but just one last thing: Could you finish this sentence? If you really knew me, you would know. So I'm sitting here uh, looking at clouds. It's uh, beautiful. Um, blue and puffy white cumulonimbus clouds. <laughs> uh, and if you knew me, you would, knew, you would know how impressed I am with the natural world, with trees and rivers and mountains and, and such. It really, it's, it's always been the most thrilling thing, I'd say, in my life. The natural world, which is interesting to say in contrast to growing up in Los Angeles. I'm a city boy. I've lived in New York. I've lived. I'm living in London. Um, I love cities. I've I've lived in Paris, so I gravitate to what big cities uh, have to offer. So that's why that 
might be something you might not know, given where I ended up landing. <laughs> yeah, cool. I'm sure the people closest to you, though, they know that. They, yeah, they definitely know that. They definitely know that. Yeah, one of my, one of my, a book to recommend right now uh, that's been out for a while is um, The Overstory. It was last year's uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novel. And trees uh, uh, figure prominently in the in the the storyline, and it's extraordinarily written. and And you get to learn a lot more about trees. One of my favorite books is The Hidden Life of Trees. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's great. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Um, Ty, if people are interested in working with you, or you know your your upcoming retreat schedule for when when that starts to happen again, what's the best way for people to sort of follow what you do and, and stay in touch with you. So the, uh, through the Institute, um, both sarahpowers.com and the insight yoga institute.com get you to the same place. Sarahpowers.com right. or the insight yoga Institute will get you to the same place. And you can, uh, reach our assistance through there. If you're trying to reach us and we just, we go from there, you'll see our schedule there and so on. So it's very easy. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, I so appreciate you sharing your um, understanding of the human condition with us. I think people will find it um, really helpful right now. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Cora, for asking me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Teaching Yoga. To get full transcripts and links for all of the resources we discuss in this show, get yourself on the newsletter at coragerou.com slash newsletter. That's C-O-R-A-G-E-R-O-U-X dot com slash newsletter. If you don't keep it real and you go somewhere but here cause you know we're only losing control just for a minute. Oh. If you don't like this music then don't be listening to it. You know I'm just a dude that you know. Or something similar If you don't keep it real Can you go somewhere but here Cause you know We're only losing control Just for a minute Oh 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 Yeah Oh 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 oh